Hello and welcome to the Energy Efficiency Podcast, sponsored by EcoFlap Home Draft Proofing Products, the ideal fit and forget energy efficiency solutions, including the Pet Flap Draft Proof Pet Door. My name is Heather Lindsay and I'm the Communications Manager for EcoFlap. This weekly podcast will bring you a mix of news, products and tips all year round. We're interested in profiling people and products involved in promoting energy efficiency habits, products and information, so please do get in touch if you have something to contribute. You can reach me at heather at ecoflap.co.uk. This week, energy efficiency in tea production, food recycling and the air quality grant scheme. But first... Last week, Business Live reported on a revolutionary power restoration project in the northeast of England. Known as Silent Power, the two-year trial will deliver power via electric vans with onboard energy storage systems. Three companies are working together to deliver this project, designed to help the most vulnerable customers in the event of planned maintenance or a power cut. Northern Power Grid runs the electricity distribution network in the northeast Yorkshire and northern Lincolnshire. It's working on this project with Sunderland Energy Storage Company Hyperdrive Innovation and rugby-based off-grid energy. When power has to go off for works or there's a power cut, usually a noisy, smelly diesel generator leaps into action to supply power. Northern Power Grid alone uses over 2,500 diesel generators every year. Silent Power instead supplies clean and quiet replacement energy for up to three homes or one small village hall per van for up to 24 hours. The scheme is aimed at the most vulnerable customers identified by the power companies and reached as a priority in the event of a power cut and those with domestic solar generation Homes that put power back into the grid, which is most domestic solar installations, can't use diesel-generated power. The three companies behind the trial, which starts this month, see it as a shift in the temporary power industry. It removes issues of getting diesel generators to places that are awkward to access and removes the issues of noise and air pollution. Northern Power Grid can reach more of their customers with these vans. The van's lithium-ion batteries run silently and produce a reliable power stream, unlike generators which do sometimes trip out. Northern Power Grid sees wide application of the new technology beyond simply supplying temporary energy to homes. It can be deployed across many sectors to reduce reliance on fossil fuels and to continue to bring down emissions. During the trial, the project will be assessed for usability, economic viability and benefit to customers. The findings will be shared with other distribution network operators. Getting tea from the plant to your cup is inherently polluting at the moment. Emissions are generated as leaves are processed, which involves withering, rolling, fermentation, drying, sorting and packing, transportation and packaging. The energy intensity of each process impacts the profitability of the tea business and the lives of the employees, but there is much that can be done to reduce the environmental impact of the other processes, including the way of life of the tea farmers. Taylors of Harrogate, which produces both tea and coffee, has examined its carbon footprint and is making changes. Its factory in Harrogate now runs on renewable energy, coming in part from solar panels on the roof, and it sends zero waste to landfill. 
Road miles from port to factory have been reduced by the simple measure of bringing their products in to a nearer port. It's working with overseas suppliers to help them reduce their carbon footprint too. Taylor's is conscious though that these measures will reduce emissions but not remove them completely. To address this, it's working with projects in Uganda, Kenya and Malawi to plant trees in some places and reduce the number being felled for fuel in others. 4,000 smallholder tea farmers around Mount Kenya are being supported to plant a million new trees in conjunction with the International Small Group Tree Planting Programme, known as TIST. TIST was started in 2002 and works in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda and India. TIST's aim is, and I quote, to empower and equip subsistence farmers to restore their natural environment, increase soil fertility, create jobs, strengthen the local community and move from famine to surplus ends. This last aim is achieved in part by planting trees that provide a crop that can be sold, for instance, avocados and mangoes. In Malawi, firewood is commonly used for cooking by the tea farmers. Taylor's is working with the Ethical Tea Partnership, United Purpose and other unnamed tea companies to provide much more efficient cooking stoves. They use a lot less wood, which reduces the deforestation, and that had become a major issue around Mount Mulanji in Malawi. Reduced smoke from these stoves is good news for the women who usually do the cooking, and this is something that came up last week when we looked at the 3% Club. The carbon reductions achieved by tailors and partner organisations are independently verified. In Kenya, progress is being made in several areas. Eastern Produce runs agricultural interests in Kenya, Malawi and South Africa as part of Camellia PLC. Camellia sinensis is the Latin name of the common tea plant. It employs 73,000 people, so its actions will be influential in its sector. On its website, Camellia describes social and environmental welfare as, quote, paramount to the sustainable future of our operations, ends. Undoubtedly, social issues have been difficult to manage on tea plantations worldwide, and this has come up in the news a few times recently. Solving acute problems such as abuse, child labour and poor employment conditions take precedence, but addressing environmental concerns will also affect the quality of life of the people working on the plantations. Eastern Produce wants to provide sustainable and ethical employment to its tea producing communities for years to come through careful custodial management of its operations. It's very awake to the business benefits of long-term investment and taking good care of its employees. Eastern Produce monitors the environmental impact of its activities and ensures they comply with legislation. It seeks to minimise the environmental impact of those areas of its operations that could use improvement. For example, in one Kenyan factory, wastewater from tea production is filtered through a series of ponds. You might recall from our feature on distilling that several distilleries in Scotland use the same sort of system. The ponds are planted with species that absorb nutrients and clean the water before it's released back to the natural watercourses locally. In its chief executive's report of April this year, Camellia PLC sets out its energy usage for 2016, 17 and 18. Energy use and carbon emissions have fallen steadily over the three years, something the report attributes to investment in energy efficiency in its tea factories. It's achieved a reduction of 6.4% in the energy required to process each kilo of tea. In the same period, use of renewable energy leapt by 57%. 
Interestingly, Camellia identifies modernising as one element of improving energy efficiency, reflecting the fact that old machinery is often very energy intensive to run. Replacing it is worth the investment. Additionally, Camellia is switching to sustainable and renewable fuels and changing its agricultural practices to be less demanding of water, fertiliser and other resources. Also in Kenya, a solar park has been commissioned that will supply power to Unilever Tea Kenya's tea leaf processing plant in Kerijo County in the Rift Valley. The mini-grid has been built within the factory complex and the solar panels are on rotating solar trackers, which boosts output by a fifth. The project has been financed by Cross Boundary Energy, an investment firm specialising in off-grid projects for business in Africa. In turn, Cross Boundary Energy has received a $6 million contribution from the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC, the American government's development finance institution. This investment will be divided between six solar projects in Africa. Unilever's mini-grid will produce 619 kilowatt peak, which is enough to process all the tea leaves harvested from the Kerico plantations. Producing power on-site reduces Unilever's exposure to power price volatility through a power purchase agreement with cross-boundary energy, at the same time reducing the use of natural resources. This is part of the company's ambition to have all its food plants running entirely on green energy, and the business model is of great interest to other companies and other sectors. Developing business in Africa will rely on the easy supply of clean energy. OPIC's investment in cross-boundary energy helps to expand PV technology across sub-Saharan Africa. If you were asked to name tea-producing countries, you'd easily come up with India and Africa and probably China. But did you know that Iran produces a tea crop? 70,000 tea-growing families deliver picked leaves to 160 processing factories in Gilan province and Mazandaran province in northern Iran. Reducing the energy taken to produce the tea increases profitability for farmers and factory owners. Research carried out three years ago looked at the opportunities for improving energy efficiency in Gilan province. One early finding was that no tea factory manager has ever received energy efficiency training and didn't know that such courses even existed. Part of the research focused on whether the managers could identify which parts of the tea producing process was the most energy intensive. Most correctly identified the tea drying stage and recognised that saving fuel here would lead to financial savings. That in turn identified that good design and the correct operation of drying furnaces is key to energy saving. The research shone a spotlight on some misconceptions about how machines can be used and revealed that poor maintenance leads to needless heat loss. Better timing of the various steps in tea leaf production can improve energy efficiency. If the leaves are too damp or not damp enough, they need different levels of treatment, which in turn can use a great deal more energy than is necessary. None of the tea factory managers had any technical training in tea production. Instead, they just learnt on the job, and this of course means that old habits die hard and there's not a lot of room for new habits. The managers who took part in this research agreed that better technical knowledge and training was vital to improving energy efficiency. They welcomed investment in more energy efficient plant and developing closer links with other areas of industry so that they can benefit from technical advancements. The Iranian government can supply factory owners with long-term, low-interest loans, but awareness of this was low.
Ultimately, poor energy efficiency was attributed to poor management and outdated knowledge, both of which are pretty straightforward and economical to rectify. India can learn from the experiences of China, India and Kenya, but it needs to be motivated to improve energy efficiency. The report suggests a system of subsidy and bonus to achieve this. Hello, Kevin. Hello. Uh, Another week, another podcast. What's the topic this week? The Air Quality Grant Scheme. Not heard of that one, but uh, obviously it's about improving air quality. How does it go about doing that? Well, it's a pot of money that local authorities bid for. For transport projects? It could be, but its primary point is to help local authorities meet their statutory duties under the 1995 Environment Act. Is it a new scheme? No, it's been going over 20 years. It started in 1997, and since then it's dished out over £60 million. It works on a financial year basis, so we're currently in the 2019 to 2020 programme. By the way, if you want to apply, you have until the 7th of November, so not long. Is there a theme or a priority each year? There certainly is this year. DEFRA is behind the scheme, and this year it's looking to finance work that provides swift improvements in air quality. And what counts as swift? In this instance, one to two years. It's also looking at projects that have long-term benefits by, and I quote, increasing awareness and encouraging behaviour change. So in other words, putting the onus back on individuals while more roads are built and Heathrow gets another runway. How much is on offer this year? At least £2 million, available to English local authorities. Just English? Yes. And within that, those areas that are likely to exceed emissions limits and places that have a designated air quality management area or areas. Are those very good or very bad areas? bad. If a local authority identifies an area that won't stay within emissions targets, it has to declare it an air quality management area. It could be a couple of streets or it could be a whole town centre. Presumably the local authority then has to come up with a plan to solve the problem. Yes, known as a local air quality action plan. And in Herefordshire that would be Bargates. Yes. Herefordshire has two air quality management areas, one in the north of Hereford City and one at the Bargates traffic lights in Lempster. Bargates routinely fails to stay within emissions targets. The sheer volume of lorries going through a small junction and backing up to a level crossing at times must be responsible for a lot. Plus all the agricultural vehicles. Suits have been trying to solve Bargates for 20 years. Anyway, having two air quality management areas would make Herefordshire eligible to bid for this funding. How have previous awards been spent? 28 awards were made in 2018-19 from £33,000 to £450,000. Some of that was spent on the obvious things such as campaigns to raise awareness of polluting behaviours and encouraging people and supporting them to develop environmentally friendly habits. But there have been some innovative projects. In Islington, electric charging points have been installed for canal boats and money has also been spent on building green walls, funding car-free days and developing pedestrianisation schemes. In Portsmouth, money went towards cycling infrastructure and in Westminster, it funded work with businesses to reduce emissions. Something that caught my eye was an anti-engine idling campaign. You see a lot less of it now than you did and I'm hoping it's one of those things that will become socially unacceptable. These projects are very varied. Do they make any real difference? That depends who you ask. DEFRA says harmful fine particulate matter levels have dropped by 10% and nitrogen oxides by 29% between 2010 and 2017 and that levels of nitrogen dioxide at the roadside are at their lowest since records began. On the other hand, Friends of the Earth 
says the funding is a drop in the ocean. Do they have a better idea? The Friends of the Earth and other green groups are focusing on clean air zones. What does that involve? Clean air zones impose strict rules on vehicle emissions and requirements. Are there some of those already or are they just a plan? No, they're already in existence. There are five at the moment. Birmingham, Leeds, Nottingham, Derby and Southampton. More areas are under investigation. That uh, These are areas that the government believes will exceed pollution limits by 2021. Well, who sees those through? Local authorities. <laughs> There's a hole in my bucket. Exactly. <laughs> these areas submit an air quality improvement plan and get funding if they're approved. Green groups, including Greenpeace, believe that these are the most effective way to bring down pollution. Client Earth, and they're a bunch of lawyers working on environmental causes and cases, view this as the government just dumping the problem on local authorities. The government's response is that local authorities know best what's needed in their area. But surely some of the projects must be making a difference. Yes, they are. In London, nine low-emissions neighbourhoods have been created. And what's the difference in those areas? Well, they're not all the same. So in one place, you might have an emphasis on infrastructure for low emissions vehicles. In another area, it might be that they're building footpaths and putting in cycle infrastructure so that people can move around with less use of cars. And that brings a social knock-on too. As people aren't so shut away in cars, they see each other more? That's right. And less busy roads are less divisive in communities. And where are those neighbourhoods? They include Barbican. So that's not just the famous flats, but the area around it. The most successful features of that low emissions neighbourhood, or LEN, are being assessed for rollout across the rest of the City of London, the square mile. This particular LEN focused on raising awareness, reducing traffic and supporting low and no emissions vehicles. And how was the project monitored? There were automatic analysers in place in various streets around the area and they collected data on levels of nitrogen dioxide and particulate matter. But they also used the magnificently named Smogmobile. This was an electric car fitted with air quality monitoring kit. So it drove around the Barbican area for three days to build up a picture of how pollution levels fluctuate during the day and across a few days. The critical environmental groups may well be right that the money is too little too late, but that doesn't mean that the projects that spring up as a result of the air quality grant scheme aren't in themselves worth it or have any value. Sounds like they have the capacity to make a real difference for people living in those areas that are taking part. That's right. We're always saying that decent cycle routes around here would be a game changer. If there was an off-road proper cycle route that our son could take to school and another in the opposite direction that our daughter could take to the station, our car use would drop by 90%. If you live in an area blighted by heavy traffic and as a result one of those projects you notice a drop in traffic and less pollution, that's going to make life a bit easier, isn't it? For sure. Undoubtedly, it's a complicated situation and there are many shades of opinion on it. It seems like no episode is complete without a quote from Sadiq Khan for no very good reason. So here's another. Politicians can't solve these issues alone. We need government ministers to wake up and recognise the true scale of this health emergency. And so say all of us. I have two contrasting tabs open in my browser. One tells me that 14% of food produced is wasted between harvest and retail. The other, that UK firms have saved more than £85 million worth of food going to waste. So what's going on? 
Last year, RAP and IGD led the Food Waste Reduction Roadmap in September last year. You may well not have heard of IGD. It describes itself as, quote, a research and training charity which sits at the heart of the food and consumer goods industry. The aim of the Food Waste Reduction Roadmap is to get large companies reporting on and reducing their food waste. There are now 156 food businesses signed up, with related businesses such as industry bodies and redistribution organisations joining the scheme. RAP reports that 121 companies have shown evidence of food waste reduction of about 7%. It might not sound like much, but it equates to 53,000 tonnes of food with a value of £85 million. RAP acknowledges that there's a great deal more to do. It wants all major food businesses implementing the roadmap from across the spectrum of the food sector. There is a need for initiatives such as this roadmap because globally about one third of food is wasted. Digest that for a moment as commentators regularly wonder where the food is going to come from to feed the world's growing population. The IPCC recently reported that food waste contributed up to 10% of man-made greenhouse gases between 2010 and 2016. Tesco was one of the first companies to sign up to the roadmap. CEO Dave Lewis wants to see food waste reporting publicly become mandatory, and RAP and the IGD believe a consistent approach across business is key to achieving meaningful waste reductions. RAP and the IGD package the roadmap measures under the phrase Target, Measure, Act. So what do they really mean? The target is the food waste reduction target for the UK operations of participating businesses. Measure is measuring their surplus and waste, and ACT is taking action to reduce food waste, both in their own businesses and influencing behaviour along their supply chain and among their consumers. Among participating businesses, some are well along the road already reducing waste, while others are still collecting data before they can set a target. The businesses involved pack a punch. Together, they represent 50% of the total turnover for all UK food manufacturing, hospitality and food services at £230 billion. It's estimated that these businesses will generate over a million tonnes of food waste per year, which is one third of what RAP's own report terms post-farmgate supply chain food waste. Of that, 70% was originally intended for human consumption. Businesses implementing Target Measure Act are seeing the benefits aside from the initial 7% savings in food waste. Businesses are sharing case studies, sector-relevant frameworks are being created, and many organisations are getting involved to help things along in their area of the food sector. However, there are at least 500 businesses that still need to engage with Target Measure Act. If the UK is going to meet UN Sustainability Goal 12.3, this, quote, aims to halve per capita global food waste at the retail and consumer levels and reduce food waste along production and supply chains by 2030, ends. Achieving this goal for the UK would mean an annual farm-to-fork food waste reduction of 3.5 million tonnes in 2030, saving food valued at £10 billion a year. Most of our big supermarket chains have been measuring their waste for several years under the Courtauld Commitment 2025. This is a RAP-driven voluntary agreement for businesses to make food and drink production more sustainable. It's built around a 10-year commitment to cut carbon, water and waste associated with food and drink by a minimum of 20% by 2025. 
The large supermarkets are often criticised for the pressure that they can and do bring to bear on their suppliers, financially and for rejecting the less beautiful fruit and veg. But this influence can also be put to good use to encourage energy saving and waste reduction among their suppliers and customers. There's a link in the notes to a list of case studies. To pick out a couple, Aldi has worked with Neighbourly to donate a million meals. Neighbourly connects shops with a surplus to organisations that can put that surplus to good use in charities and schools. Many supermarkets now work with similar schemes. Boots, which tends to specialise in short-life products such as sandwiches and fruit, the sort of thing you might pick up for lunch if you're on the move, has reduced food waste by nearly 20% over the last three to four years. It's pledged to reduce food waste by 50% by 2030, and these sound a long way off, but they're really just over 10 years away now. Frozen food chain Iceland sends no food to landfill and is left with only 0.7% of its stock unsold. Instead, unsold food is given to the community or used to make animal food and beer. Some heads to an anaerobic digester to make electricity and compost. So why does food go to waste in the first place? Supermarkets have a good idea of how much of any given product they're going to sell in a day or a week, but blips occur. Closer attention to stock management has made a difference to supermarkets including Asda and the co-op, while some manufacturers are taking steps to increase shelf life. Food producers need to focus on maximising yield from their raw ingredients and do what they can to prevent overproduction. Some food goes to waste during manufacturing through leaks and spillages, so paying attention to kit and processes makes a difference here. Many improvements can be made in farming the grains, fruit and vegetables that go into food manufacturing so that fewer crops are discarded or not up to snuff. Farmers have made improvements in irrigation, crop protection, precision delivery of fertiliser through technology and precise analysis of growing and harvesting patterns. Restaurants have been targeted by RAP's Guardians of Grub campaign. It's focused on reducing the £3 billion worth of food thrown away at hospitality and food service outlets, 75% of which could have been eaten. RAP claims that their resources are applicable to every outlet from the swankiest restaurant to your local pub. It comes down to simple, cheap changes to the purchase, preparation and serving of food. Simple measures include the blindingly obvious, such as there being someone actually tasked with tracking food use and waste, which then informs the buying pattern. Checking items are used before their expiry date. Using ingredients in their entirety, from chicken bones to broccoli stalks. Freezing usable excess ingredients and encouraging customers to take leftovers home with them. I thought everyone did this anyway. We certainly do. Really, it's what you do at home, but scaled up. Buy only what you need and are going to use. Freeze anything you don't use. Eat the leftovers and make sure things don't go to die at the back of the fridge. Waste needs to be defined in the context of food production. If the metric is, could that have been eaten? Then yes, a great deal of food is wasted in this country. If we ask instead, what happens to wasted food? Then the picture is less bleak, with only a small proportion going to landfill. Much unsold food now goes to groups that can use it to feed hungry people. Unsold crops can be ploughed back into the earth, where they will support the next crop to be grown there. Some are used to feed animals or go into anaerobic digestures to create electricity or compost, which again will feed future crops. Unsold products can be diverted into processes including beer making. We saw in our feature on the Vibes Awards that a bakery sold surplus rolls to a brewery for a special beer. 
Despite many of the measures taken by businesses big and small being firmly rooted in common sense, businesses need support to take steps if they aren't to feel their alone voice. Among big business, reducing food waste is now a badge of honour, but it's probably harder for your local chippy or pizza delivery shop that's having to compete with lots of other local outlets and serving a clientele that maybe doesn't prioritise or value energy efficiency in food production. Businesses signing up to the roadmap will find that support, plus resources to help them formulate a strategy and turn round food waste. On the 13th and 14th of November, you can attend the World NZEB Forum 2019 in Ireland. The theme this year is Climate Action Through Nearly Zero Energy Buildings, or NZEBs. Quote, the event will showcase the very best in expertise, design, case study buildings and innovative products, EMS. The website goes on to say, if you've not yet heard of NZEB or you want to explore this topic in greater detail, you've come to the right place. We are certain you will leave this event inspired and ready to embrace what is a paradigm shift in how we design, build and operate the spaces where we live and work, ends. The event costs €295 for non-members and €265 for delegates from qualifying organisations. And what are we up to? Our trial cuts on the new laser cutter are very promising. We expect to have new stock by the end of October, so get in touch on info at ecoflap.co.uk if you want to join the list of reservations. We are now unable to dispatch abroad due to uncertainty around Brexit. Thank you for listening to episode 20 of the Energy Efficiency Podcast. Until next time, you can find us on both Twitter and Instagram as Ecoflap, and on Twitter we also tweet as the Petflap. Next week, energy efficiency and participatory budgets, energy efficiency in freight, and the UK's new environment bill.